0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. The Gospel of Mark, Chapter 2. Mark, Chapter 2. Last week... um, we looked at three words to cultivate more Jesus in 2020 in life. And I asked a question last week in this series that I want to pick up on today and kind of spend some time on. And the question was simply this, why is it that you do what you do? I ask you, do do you know, do you think about why it is you do what you do. And so today I want us to take a moment to consider our motivations and the motivations for our actions as Christ followers and and why it is that we labor for more Jesus. Do we just do what we do to satisfy God or do we do what we do for some greater glory? I want us to see three convictions today that produce Christ-centered living for more Jesus in us. And and more than I want us just to see them, I want us to be taken hold of by them. And so my prayer for us today is that this will take place among us as we look at the passage in Mark chapter 2. Here's what I want you to walk away with today, that Christians live for more Jesus by sharing the gospel with all people because Jesus forgives sin and gives life. Let us never forget what it is that Jesus truly does, that he does for us what no one else can and ever will be able to. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And ask the Lord to bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. This is such a potent story in the New Testament. And the whole of Mark's gospel is written with a spiritual punch, you might say. He gets right to the point, and that point always hits home. In this particular narrative, the word gets out that Jesus has come back to Capernaum, and the crowds begin to flock He's got a testimony, and he's got a witness among the people that when he's here, you want to hear him. And so the crowds begin to gather. Mark tells us to hear him teach. And there's not just standing room only. Mark actually says there's no room only, that, that, that every square inch is consumed by people. And here's what Mark record, records. I don't want you to miss this. It says, and he was preaching the word to them. Don't miss what's taking place here, friends. When the crowds gathered, Jesus made his first priority, the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word. Maybe this seems cold or impersonal to you in many ways, that with all the people standing around and so many of them who had come because of the deep, real need and their hearing of the great work that Jesus could do in healing and all of the other miracles he performed, it was Jesus' choice to choose preaching as the first and the greatest act of ministry that he could perform and share with people. And so he goes on to tell us that four men bring a paralytic on his bed to Jesus. And when the crowd prevented them from coming near, they would not be thwarted in their effort. So they remove the roof to lower him to Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you, most of my life I've been impressed by the, 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 the willingness to rip the roof off to get their friend to Jesus, Right? And and in this day and time, most roofs were made with uh, mud and thatch and, and were actually kind of intended to be able to be taken off and had to be reapplied each and every year. But one thing I don't want us to forget here is not only the ripping off of the roof to get their friend before Jesus, but the great distance that they had already brought him on his bed. There had to be some discomfort in that, right? I mean, They're carrying this man. And so maybe the best part about this, though, in these first five verses is just how simply and normal Mark makes this sound in his record. Like, oh, yeah, well, there's four guys. They brought a friend. He was on his bed, so they had to carry him the whole way. And when they couldn't get him in to hear Jesus, they ripped the roof off and lowered him right in front of Jesus, gave him a front row seat right there. I'll just let that sit on you for a minute. It's the most desirable place in the room to sit. And while I shouldn't feel this way, I do love you most if you sit right here. <laughs> that, that's kind of a joke. But Mark just makes this sound normal. I mean, it's just what anybody would do, right? If you know a friend that, that is bound to a, a bed because they're paralyzed, he just states it like that's what any normal person should expect if that is what required. The fact of the matter is, friends, they would not be deterred, so they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. No doubt, many people with mud on their head and faces and having to be cleared back somewhat because they didn't want the bed to be sitting on top of them. And then verse 5, look at verse 5. He makes an astounding statement. And when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith is that? It must be a reference to the faith of the four men who brought their friend. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I, I just want to get all in your personal theological space for a moment about what you believe about salvation because I think Mark has just gotten right in our face with it here. Four men who had great faith to bring their friend to Jesus and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic on the bed, your sins are forgiven listen you don't have to believe me you can read it for yourself but that's exactly what the text said it is so important to note for us and this will become more important in a moment in the story Jesus did not say to the man I forgive your sins he said to the man your sins are forgiven we'll come back to that in a moment but that's important because of what the religious leaders will accuse him of when Jesus saw the paralytic and the faith of the four who brought him, he pronounced his sins forgiven. That's potent, potent faith, friends. I mean, that's, that's palpable faith. You can smell it, you can taste it, you can touch it and feel it. You can't get away from it in this room. Friends, first, I want us to see why today we need more Jesus. And this story stands out for a number of reasons, but three I want to point out. I want to state the obvious in the first reason and ask the question that I know many have asked in the reading of this passage. Did Jesus even see the bed that the man was lying on? Did he even see that the man was paralyzed? For this to be his first response Did he know the man's condition? Or or did he even bother to ask, how long have you been paralyzed? You think about that? Such a glaring, present, physical need. And yet Jesus went right past it to talk about his sins and his need for salvation. Of course Jesus knew his need. Everybody in the room knew his need. You couldn't miss it. It had just fallen in on top of them, right? And not only did Jesus know, but more importantly, he cared. We know this. We know that Jesus hears, we know that he sees, we know that he cares, we know that he forgives, we know that this is true of our Lord. But Mark records that Jesus's response was to show the greater need and the higher glory. And this is what he will identify in just a moment. Friends, hear me, I want you to understand why we need more Jesus, and what stands out most strikingly in this story, that spiritual salvation is the first and the greatest need of every person, regardless of their place and regardless of their position in life. That's what Jesus is teaching us. That's what Mark is putting before us by the ministry of Jesus. The second reason why we need more Jesus that I want us to see here today and why this passage stands out to us is is that Mark shows us that when Jesus saw the faith of the four who brought the paralytic to him, he pronounced the paralytic's sins forgiven. Now, there is no doubt that, that that man... And his faith was in some way absent from all that was taking place. As a matter of fact, we don't know and it's not necessarily correct for us to surmise that he hadn't paid his friends to bring him. that that he had not begged his friends to bring him, that Scripture doesn't say, and and there's really no need for us to to infer in some way, shape, manner, or form. But we do know this, that, that Mark says, when he saw the faith of the four men, he pronounced the paralytic's sins forgiven. You see, friends, the faith of the four, in some way, some measure, some form, before God, served as an empowering faith for the paralytic to meet Jesus. That's potent, friends. Potent. Mark is not teaching a transferable faith here that you can believe for someone and And all will be taken care of. You need not worry for them. I I don't think he's teaching that at all. But he is highlighting. He is putting right in front of our face. A very important truth for us. That the way Christ followers live. To share Jesus with other people. Is critical to salvation. It is critical to bring people to faith in Jesus. Listen friends. I believe what Jonah says, that salvation is from the Lord. And when God saves, it is a personal, individual salvation. That there is salvation found in no other name given among men under heaven than the name of Jesus himself. But do not believe for one moment that it is not in the divine will, plan, and work of God that the gospel and the good news and the understanding of God's salvation does not come through his people and a faithful witness that they bear, both in their words and in their witness of life and action to other people. The third thing that stands out to me here that reminds us why it is we need more Jesus is that when Jesus responds to their faith, he begins with an ultimate and what is most important, the forgiveness of sins. Why is that so powerful? Because the man is a paralytic. Let me give you some background to this. That very likely, because he was a paralytic, he was not allowed in the temple when normal sacrifice for sin would be offered. He was, in many ways, imperfect in the eyes of the religious leaders, would not be allowed to come into the outer gate. He would have to sit outside the outer gate of the temple, and because of his physical malady, would not be allowed in. And so because of that, he was never allowed to participate in the religious sacrifices where forgiveness was pronounced. And, and I want us to let this sink in for just a moment. That due to his physical state, the man had very likely never heard a priest tell him not only that his sins were forgiven, but that his sins could be forgiven. Can you imagine how dark And hopeless a life is. To know your own failures and shortcomings, weaknesses and inabilities. And be able to do nothing about them. But to try and maintain some sense and sensibility of life in the midst of them. But have no inkling, no spark of hope that anything could ever be done about them. Let that sink in. Very likely, no one had ever bothered to think of this man's far deeper burden of sin on his soul. We talked about, I made mention of of the beggar at the temple gate in Acts 3 last week that Peter and John encounter and what they did for him. And very likely, people tossed a coin at the height of their generosity into him and their thought was that poor pitiful soul. But by soul, they didn't see his deeper need. They meant the fact that he couldn't get up and come in for himself. Very likely, no one had ever bothered to think of this man's far deeper burden of sin on his soul because all they ever really saw was his physical state. That he was paralyzed on a mat. It's hard to get over. It can be really hard to to get beyond something so glaringly visible. And friends, he might not be able to walk tomorrow by Jesus' initial statement, but he was already with God today. That's what Mark is saying to us here. Jesus didn't get distracted, nor did he get disturbed by this man's physical state, but he addressed the man's greatest burden of life, the forgiveness and the cleansing That set his soul free from sin. Five verses. Life changing impact. I want you to consider with me for just a moment longer. That Jesus didn't look at the man and think you poor paralytic. How horrible must your state be? He didn't look at the man and think of him as a project. You know, we could make a lot of ground here. I'm able to heal physical maladies. And so I could change this man's state on earth immediately with a word. Neither did Jesus say, I could act right now to impress people. And look how much good that would do for the kingdom. Rather, Jesus looked at the the faith of his four friends and he looked at the state of this man before God. And he went right to the heart of the matter to forgive him of his sins. Neither did he look at this chance to change a man's physical status. Though, listen to me, that's not unimportant to Jesus. Jesus never looked at a man and his four friends and thought of him as anything other than, get this, a man. A man. With the same need for forgiveness and salvation as any other person on the face of the earth. He saw him as a man in need of forgiveness from sin. Friends, every one of us in the room sitting here today should be fully aware of this, that when God looks upon you, He knows all about you better than you know yourself. He sees, He hears, He cares. But he is neither distracted nor deterred by the shortcomings, by the insufficiencies, by the maladies of our life. He loves you and he sees you for who you really are. And his greatest desire for you is to bring you into a personal relationship with him. Don't miss that. That's what's so powerful. Jesus saw a man whose soul deeply longed for something more. And he gladly and generously poured out his loving forgiveness on his sin-stained soul to set him free. Now likely, Jesus was one of a few people to ever look at this man in his state and to actually see him. as as a person how do we know this well the scriptures reveal this that's how Jesus looked at all people Jesus related to all people by seeing them for who they really were and not being distracted by only their physical state or some other state in this life as well we know the Samaritan woman at the well who every cultural religious and even legal boundary said you should not be speaking to her he did not let that distract him And she knew it too. She said, who are you and why are you asking me for a drink of water? We're not supposed to be speaking. And Jesus said, I I know. And as they went on, it wasn't just the socioeconomic status. It wasn't just the ethnical status. It wasn't just the religious or the legal status that Jesus was glad to step over to get to them. It was far more than that. It was even the moral status. Because Jesus said, I, I know you're not married. As a matter of fact, you've been divorced five times and the man you live with now is not your husband. But I want you to know that doesn't stop me from loving you. And doesn't stop me from coming to you as someone who deeply needs forgiveness from your sin. And I'm going to tell you, that woman was a spark of revival in that place. When Jesus encountered the woman who had been caught in adultery, likely set up by the Pharisees, so led by the religious leaders into sin and then caught her in the act threw her, not the other man who was part of the adultery, but the woman, threw her in front of Jesus and said, will you be the first to cast a stone to kill her? The law says she was caught in adultery, she ought to die. And what does the scripture tell us? Jesus didn't look at her and go, you dirty, filthy, no good person. Rather, he leaned down and began to draw in the sand, no doubt to irritate the religious leaders. And then he just said to them, why don't you who are without sin throw the first stone? And we'll see how that works for you. It's interesting how quickly Jesus could dispel a crowd as well. When the crowds were pressing in and not only the house was full, but the whole place was full. Luke tells us in chapter 19 about a man who was so small he could get lost in the crowd like a ghost. And his name was Zacchaeus, and he climbed up into a tree just so he could see Jesus. Now, uh, Zacchaeus had a theft ring going with the government's approval like none you could imagine. He was filthy, ridiculous, rich, hated by all, but he didn't care because he was getting the green. But you know what? Jesus didn't let that stop him from finding this little invisible man in the middle of crowds that were so ridiculously large it was uncomfortable to be in public. And he said to him out of everybody, you, come here. I'm eating at your house today. What's for lunch? Right? Because Jesus didn't let our exterior get in the way of ministering to our souls. He was unencumbered by the biases and the bigotries, by the preferences, by the labels, and by the pressures that the world was pushing upon people to judge, to measure, and to value other people. You see, friends, He sees every person for what they really are created in the image of God intended and purposed for a relationship to to bring glory with our creator here on the earth and he works for that very glory to bring it to the father by bringing redemption to souls that have been stained and lost In sin. How often the way that we see and perceive people needs a reality check. How quickly we walk by, how quickly we're the first two who pass the man who's been beaten and left for dead on the street before the Good Samaritan arrives. Why? Because we look and we perceive out of our own life and assumptions. Last week, I cautioned us not to put limitations on what God wants to do in or through our lives in the way that we make resolutions and goals for the new year. Today, I want to offer another caution, and I put myself at the very front of this line, so don't think I'm pointing fingers. I'm speaking plurally to all of us. Let us not limit what God can do in the life of any person by the way we perceive them and see them Christ follower look on every person as what they really are created in the image of God to bring glory to the father by a personal relationship with him there's not one person who ever has is or ever will walk on the face of the earth that that's not the greatest reason that God created them and put them here And may we live with such a defining conviction that nothing could convince us, yea, even threaten to deter us from believing that for them. Never think as well that your faith in Jesus to invest and to share the gospel is in some manner, measure, or extent unimportant or, yea, even impotent to bring faith to people for salvation. I want to charge us to live ready to love, to live ready to share the gospel, and to be used by God as an instrument of His righteousness, a faithful witness to glorify Him in the world. Friends, I want to share with you today conviction number one, life point. We need more Jesus, that we might live so controlled by His love that we live ready to sacrifice at any cost and cross any barrier. To bring people to Jesus. If you had to measure your own conviction about that today, where would it be? I'm not asking if you believe it, because if you're a Christian and you don't believe this, we need to talk about your being a Christian. <laughs> that that while salvation is surely, again, I'll say individual, personal, it's not only personal. Because when God saves an individual, he makes them the people of God. That's plural. For a purpose, his mission. And by this conviction, might we begin to see more deeply in us that every act of our life, every amount of, or inkling of energy, of thought, of heart, and of soul, that no matter where we're at or who we're with, That the love of God would be so compelling to us that has been put on us that it would control us. To live in such a way to see people the way Jesus sees people here. Made in the image of God, purposed for his glory. Now secondly, I want us to consider what it is that happens when Jesus is not more but actually less. And my reference to less Jesus today is really a... A nice way of arguing for no, Jesus, if I can. And that no would be N-O, not K-N-O-W. No, Jesus. Go to verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. I'm going to tell you, good things never follow that statement right there, right in the Bible. And they were questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? It's a potent question, isn't it? Let me tell you why they preferred the healing. Because that was something they could see and they didn't have to believe. They could see it first. I think it's also reveals their value system that the immediate was more ultimate to them than the ultimate. Verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So listen to this. This is why Jesus is going to do what he's about to do. And what's he about to do? He's about to heal the paralytic, okay? But listen to why he does it. Again, we never know this man's name. All he's ever referred to is a paralytic. There's a little bit of imperson, uh, impersonableness to this. I bet that man had a name, and I bet he was known by that name. But Mark's record, he's just the paralytic. And so he says, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Friends, the religious leaders did not like what Jesus had done. What do you mean, what he had done? What he had said about forgiving of sin. So they're questioning him in their hearts. And here's the thing about Jesus: the same heart that he sees in need, he also sees in question right like Jesus hears all of that and and they did have some grounds for their question based on their religious paradigm Jesus was not a priest no one had offered any sacrifice for sin at that moment and so there was no basis for forgiveness to be granted but again the problem was this not that Jesus was vying as a candidate for priesthood no he came as God and that was the problem that they had with Jesus they didn't believe that he was God If he were vying for candidacy in the priesthood, they would have had a legitimate argument against him. But the problem was when Jesus came, he made a claim that he was what no one else had ever claimed. He was God. And who are they to tell God he cannot forgive sin? But if forgiving sins did not prove he was God, shouldn't knowing what their hearts were saying to themselves have been enough? and yet it wasn't. Jesus knew their hearts. He perceived what they were asking, so they asked why they questioned, and then they posed a second question about, or Jesus posed a second question about which was easier. Is it easier to, to do a sign, something that impresses immediately but does not last for eternity, or is it more difficult to grant true forgiveness But he said, because you will believe a sign. And hear me, friends, Jesus uses signs for his purpose in the New Testament. He didn't waste one of them, that's for sure. But he healed this man as a sign to the unbelieving. Why? Because by the time he got to the healing, that man didn't need forgiveness. He had already been forgiven. He knew God. And so he got up, picked up his bed... And he walked out from the house that he had been lowered by a hole in the roof. Just as Jesus said, the sign amazed them. So that they said, we've never seen anything like this. Ooh, and ah, they'd come from church. They had come to church on that day to be wowed, to be entertained, and to be impressed. And they got their little fix on that day. But here's what it didn't do, according to what Jesus said. It didn't prove anything to them To conquer their unbelief. Because though they were amazed, they walked away in unbelief the same way they walked in. Signs are good, friends, and Jesus uses them. But they're not final, nor are they ultimate. And that's what Mark is teaching us in his gospel in chapter 2. When you follow Jesus through the gospels, the crowd that gathers to see the miracles is always far greater than the crowd that listens to his teaching More than 5,000 gathered in one instance. And we know that was not a one-time shot, that that happened multiple times. We know that that crowd actually probably numbered in the tens of thousands, maybe 15 or as many as 20,000 that gathered to hear him, many of which were so far away they could barely perceive what he was saying. But here's what we also know, that throughout the New Testament, only about 500 ever really followed him. Let me ask you this. What strikes you most about Jesus? His ability to defy natural laws of the universe or His power to conquer sin, death, in the grave. You see, these two don't have to stand in opposition to one another. Christians should fully celebrate and worship God because of the great signs and wonders that He performs among them, but they should never be our highest glory. And to be quite honest, the only way to harmonize signs and wonders with true salvation is when miracles serve the true work of bringing forgiveness to for sins and to show that signs are never the point friends but they are used to tell us something and to point to a greater reality that Jesus is God and he is the one who holds all power and authority over all things not even the biggest signs though can overcome the hardest heart only faith can kill unbelief do you know what verses 6 through 12 really tells us They tell us what it is really like to have less, or shall we say, no, Jesus. They show us what a hard heart looks like. They show us how much more we're impressed by the show of the miracle than being overjoyed by the grace of eternal salvation. That the religious demand puts upon a person a far greater weight of importance on what is outward change rather than what is ultimate inward transformation. But friends, you don't have to think of yourself as religious in order to be religious. I mean, self-righteousness produces the same hardness of heart as religion. Unbelief and hardness of heart, whether religious or self-righteous, they all come from a lack of Jesus. And when you become satisfied with less Jesus, you settle for external change. And you actually begin to strive after outward signs, after what impresses, after what entertains. But you're not overly interested in being bothered by and surely never inconvenienced or sacrificed for true Transformation. Religion and self-righteousness just flat out don't have the time nor the allowance for real gospel power because it's often not immediately seen with the eyes, but requires faith. And therefore, it's just beyond your ability to believe. Questioning the work of God in salvation, that's easy, friends. That doesn't take discernment. It takes doubt and unbelief. That's easy. As a matter of fact, it's so easy. Each of us have some area where we're most tempted to doubt and maybe even not to believe Jesus in that. It is as universal as humanity. But it only produces more of the same hardness of heart from which it came. Never offers any help for those that are suffering. You see, the less Jesus you have, the more religion and self-righteousness will fill up within you, which is always what makes you less loving and more impatient think about this less hopeful, more demanding, less interested in what God can do and more interested in what impresses you or what is taxing upon you, less trusting, more cynical, less joyful, more consumed with personal pleasure, convenience. You see the less Jesus you have, the more religious and self-righteousness demand that others appease you, that others entertain you, that others measure up to your expectations over celebrating what it is that really brings glory to God or what is Truly, ultimately good for other people. And the same religious people that doubted and questioned to disbelieve Jesus' ability to forgive sin are the same ones that orchestrated his death and denied his resurrection from the grave. Think about that. They were already working. The less Jesus you have, the less desire or tolerance you have for his presence in your life or his presence around your life. And the less Jesus you have, the more of yourself that you are ultimately full of no matter what label you put on it. The religion and self-righteousness of less Jesus always grows in the heart that is filling with self. That is filling with self-interest. That is filling with self-concern. That is filling with self-preference. That is filling with selfishness. That is filling with self-centeredness. And may I even say today that is filling with so many of the practical measures of self-care today. We just don't give time for other people. Because we're so consumed with everything that we need and want. Christ, Father, our zeal to get people to Jesus must be with us every day must begin where people live, where, where they feel their pain most and the, their brokenness of life is most evident in them. And this, this is where Christians must stand ready to meet people, to lead them to Jesus. It, it doesn't matter where a person's greatest need reveals itself. We hold this conviction for all people. It is of far greater importance and significance that a person know God more than that they just know tomorrow will be good for them. Our first inclination is sharing Jesus because it is the greatest way that we can help a person that will never be able to help themselves in that way. Here's the second conviction I want to lay up on you today. We need more Jesus because without him we are destined to live by the assumptions that we make, our biases and our bigotries and the preferences that we prioritize while people remain in bondage to sin and hurting in this world without Jesus. Third, I want us to see how we labor for more Jesus. And here I begin with the conviction, and I'm going to move to what I'll call three convictional actions, and we'll conclude with this. The third conviction is this. Life point, we must labor by pray, invest, invest, And engage for more Jesus because what God wants to do in each one of us, what God wants to do among us as a church, and what God wants to do through us in the world will only happen as we seek and serve Him together by sharing the gospel. It will not happen because of the greatness of us, it will happen as more Jesus becomes the defining characteristic of us. And so I give you three convictional actions today for more Jesus. In the back of every black chair, there's a card that looks like this. And I'm going to invite you to take one. You can just go ahead and pull them out and begin to hand them out. He said I have to. Just go ahead and hand it to them. And they can throw it away on their way out if they want to. But I hope you want. Three convictional actions. First of all, to pray. Pray. To pray for gospel transformation. Jesus' first act is to proclaim because he was the good news who had come. We know Jesus as the living word, the good news from God. Our first act is to pray his will and his work be done on earth and to labor to that very end. In. Pray for the people that God has placed all around you, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your enemies. Every person that you are most tempted to look at every day and cast your assumptions upon them as you walk right by them. Their physical state may not be as noticeable as the paralytics. But I can tell you what, their spiritual state is exactly the same as his without Jesus. Pray. Invest in people and relationships. I want to ask you, as you pray, would you identify three people to specifically pray for their salvation? Three people. And if you don't know, ask God to put them on your heart. Ask God to bring them to your mind and just begin to record their names so that you can ask God to use you, your faith in this work, for their salvation. Invest in people and relationships serve others not only in what you do but how you do encourage in some way maybe it's a coworker you see every day but you can bring the intentionality of investing in their life simply by saying today they're going to feel better because they're going to hear something encouraging from me and just pour into them and ask God to use it ask God to bless it sharing Jesus and serving in his name friends we know this from those four friends it will cost you But it will always be worth far more to you and for you than what it demands from you. You will be blessed as you live to be a blessing. And third, invest with the intentional purpose of engaging people with the gospel. As you pray, as you invest, seek ways to engage people with the gospel. For the gospel is the Christ follower's first priority. Because only Jesus, the living word, gives new life. And let me give you one simple way to engage people with the gospel. Invite them to come with you to church. Invite them to come with you to community group. Let me tell you why this is potent. Number one, statistics continually tell us they have for generations now, at least uh, the last two generations, that one of the greatest reasons people don't come to church is they've never been invited by someone that they knew But let me tell you why invite is such a potent form of engaging people with the gospel. Because when you invite someone to come with you, be it to community group or be it to church and the worship gathering, what you say to them is, I don't want you just to go do something. I want you to come see what has so impacted my life. And you're inviting them into that relational connection to see how God has worked in you and to hear how God can work in them. Pray. Invest and engage. Christians live for more Jesus by sharing the gospel with all people. Why? Because he forgives sin and he and he alone gives life. Would you pray with me?